This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I've got Gorhev Sinha of Wisdom Tree and Steel with me. The next half hour, we talk with Rushir Sharma, who's the head of emerging markets and the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Rushir is a return guest and has been a prolific author. We've got one of his books, The Rise and Fall of Nations, here in the studio with us. Uh, he just wrote a new book, Democracy on the Road, A 25-Year Journey Through India, which was released earlier in 2019. Uh, Gaurav is one of our strategists focused on India, and so I know he's going to love talk with Rushir on his outlook there. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Chiefs affiliates. Um, but Rashir, maybe uh, we just had a, a first half conversation focused on China and the global economy. Maybe give us, you know, as your purview at the head of uh, overall emerging markets, how, how do you think of emerging markets today? There's a lot of interesting political dynamics. I mean, how are you looking at the, the broad world today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, to put this in perspective, that for emerging market equities, this has been the worst decade ever in terms of total returns. You know, we got data on this going back nearly 100 years. And so this has been a very disappointing decade for emerging markets uh, in terms of equities in particular. Now, it's very interesting that the last decade, uh, the 2000s, was exactly the opposite, which is that it was a great year for emerging market equities, and the U.S. stock market did nothing last decade. So I think that we could once again be setting up for some sort of a reversal in the coming decade, uh, which is the fact that a lot of these emerging markets, the sentiment is quite washed out. Uh, They have gone through the adjustment process after the big boom, uh, which they had last decade and a lot of excesses cropped up. Uh, so while it may never come back to the kind of go-go days that we ha- had in the last decade for emerging markets, I think that we could be setting up once again for certainly some sort of a role reversal uh, where emerging market equities come back into the spotlight after a washed out decade that we have had this decade. Yeah, I'm with you on that worldview. Now, I've been saying I've been saying that they're cheap, you know, compared to other markets for a little while. So I got to take that that view with the grain of salt. But they their valuations have they are one of the lowest levels relative to the S and P, and it's not like it's just energy and commodity type sectors. I mean, it's a very different type of company in your standard indexes even today. I mean, how how do you think that valuation story is that is it largely a value combined with better growth prospects? Is that the main narrative there? Yeah, I think that's exactly it, uh, which is the fact that uh, the um, and the sectors <clears throat> which look interesting are, are, as you pointed out, not just the materials, energy kind of cyclical sectors, but some of the more domestic-oriented sectors, consumer staples, consumer discretionary, um, even financials. I think that that's where the real interest in emerging market lies, because um, I mentioned to you that the total return in emerging markets over the last 
decade was uh, has been close to zero. But um, there's a more interesting picture in there, which is that whatever positive returns you have had in some stocks have been very concentrated in a handful of these large mega cap tech stocks, uh, the Tencent Alibaba kind of stocks, or, you know, the the Chinese internet stocks, the semiconductor yeah. stocks. That's where you really had the outsized returns. So if you strip that out, then you get an entire swath in emerging markets, which has done very poorly over the last decade, uh, which is masked by the overall index performance that itself is disappointing. So I think that a lot of these domestic-oriented sectors is where you could find a lot of opportunity in emerging markets uh, in the decade ahead. So would it be right, Richard, to say that as you move along uh, in this more uh, sort of fragmented world, which is dominated by the noise from the trade war to, you know, all kinds of geopolitics, you think the story is more in the small caps and the mid caps going more consumers and more sort of local story rather than export and large cap companies? Yes, that's exactly it. So one of the big themes that I have, you know, you mentioned the book there, also the Rise and Fall of Nations that I wrote about three years ago. I, in that book, I basically outlined that the global economy was uh, being uh, hampered by three Ds. And by those three, three Ds, I meant demographics, debt, and deglobalization. And I think that deglobalization is the point that you've just hit upon, that we had an era of uh, incredible globalization and that was very advantageous to export-oriented, large multinational type of companies. I think that in this era of deglobalization that we are in now, a, a lot of the domestic-oriented companies is where you are likely to find more stable growth, uh, and they also have better value today. So yes, I'd say that that's the prism shift as we are in this new era of deglobalization. I read your book, Ruchir, and it's a great book. You outline like 10 or 11 indicators that everyone should be looking out in different economies. Um, so so if I implement those indicators, what economies you think are heading in the right directions and what economies you think are not heading in the right direction? Right. So my biggest concern when I look at those 10 indicators is China today uh, because some of those sort of red flags for China that are there in those 10 indicators, whether it's got to do with their debt, their demographics, uh, also the deglobalization. I think that those are the factors where China, like for me, doesn't score that well. And this is a bit counterintuitive because a lot of people are getting very really bulled up about China uh, over the last uh, few quarters. On the positive side, I think that a lot of the Southeast Asian economies, whether it's Indonesia, uh, Philippines, possibly even Malaysia and Thailand, some of the Eastern European economies uh, like Poland, Hungary, Czech, and even in Latin America, I think that the economies such as Chile, even Mexico, that's where I'm, uh, the indicators are pointing uh, in the positive direction. And remember, what I focus on, and as I think we should as investors, is not the absolute indicators, but the rate of change. That where is the indicator, where are these indicators moving in the positive direction and where are they moving in the negative direction? The absolute level is not what matters to us because that's what the market is already priced in. It's where the prospective change is likely to take place. And I think that the, these economies that I've just outlined for you in Latin America, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, that's where I find that the indicators are likely 
to turn positive or are heading in the positive direction for the coming few years. Bit surprised that you didn't mention India. You know, like India, like I have the line in the book, as I sort of mentioned there, which is that this is a country that consistently disappoints the optimist and the <laughs> pessimist. So this is a country that I remain engaged in and I've been engaged in for a long period of time. I started my investing career in this country. But I've always felt that as far as India is concerned, the macro story there to me is stable, but not that sort of uh, volatile or even exciting. It's sort of stable, uh, what we get there. The macro volatility in India compared to other countries is relatively stable. So India, I really sort of remain very focused on a bottom-up basis, looking at stocks, looking at specific themes to play in India. So yes, it's a market that I like, and I've always liked it uh, for my 25-year investing history. Uh, but as far as the um, uh, indications from a macro perspective are concerned, I'm you know sort of in the dead zone. It's not either green or red. Uh, that's how it stacks up. If we go back to your your three levels of of demographics and deglobalization, you know, I think the the narrative on India has been that it's the most local, you know, economy of the a lot of the emerging markets that it tends to be very consumer oriented from that perspective. Um, you know, it tends to be more expensive because it tends to be in some of those more consumer long run growth, and they like the demographics. Um, so, where what's in, in your view the the biggest on the negative side? It, what's what's the con? The core is that the reform process in India just remains so incremental in nature uh, that it's not as if they ever do anything which sort of really moves the needle a lot. And there is a lot of complacency in India that we are big, uh, capital has to come here, where else will the money go? There is that sort of attitude which I sort of see like in India. So that, I think, is the con for me, the, the you know, like the sort of attitude that, where else will the money go? It's a large market. It has to come here. It's bound to grow at a very uh, rapid pace given its low per capita income. All arguments which sound plausible, but also breed a pretty high degree of complacency about the market. But, Richard, don't you think India is like a 60-40 portfolio where you have a stable growth, less volatility? And I think you mentioned this in your book as well, that a lot of time democracies tend to be have a more stable return profile, unlike, you know, more centrally driven countries where you'll have a decade of extraordinary growth and then another decade where it's very volatile. So in that sense, I agree with you that the reform process has been a very gradual process. But um, I think the other side is that for the reform process to reverse, that's not that easy to happen with all the checks and balances of the uh, political setup in India. Would, it, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. So as I said, that it's a market I remain constantly engaged in uh, because we always have good companies to find that. In fact, I've done some work subsequently to show that if you look at all emerging markets, the maximum number of companies where you will find uh, stable growth and relatively high growth in the entire emerging market universe is India. So that's why it's a it's a market I always remain engaged in. The issue is that in the next few months, um, we have to really see as to how they're going to deal with some of the problems that they're currently grappling with, uh, in that there is a bit of a liquidity squeeze which is going on as far as the market's concerned. Uh, they have not been able to fix the financial sector as yet, which is suffering from a legacy of bad loans that were uh, stacked up a, a while back. Uh, so I think that those are the sort of uh, monkey wrenches, so to speak, as far as the overall market and the economy is concerned. 
And so that is a slight concern uh, to me. But otherwise, it's a market that, yes, I want to be constantly engaged in, but it's a market where I think that possibly makes the the best bottom-up opportunities. Uh, So I'd approach it much more that way. Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that because in some of my work as well, we found exactly same thing what you're saying that when economies grow at, you know, a seven, seven and a half percent growth rate, they create enough tailwinds for um, companies across the board, whether large cap, mid cap and small cap to just simply piggyback on those tailwinds and, you know, just do their job and have an efficient uh, revenue stream for their shareholders. So from that perspective, it is uh, it is an interesting story. Now, I, you also came out with your another book, Ruchir, which was Democracy on the Road, I think, before Indian election. And I was watching some of your interviews. You clearly said that Modi is probably likely to come back. But were you surprised with the magnitude of his victory? And does it is it a good thing for India moving forward or a bad thing or not so sure? Yeah, so the magnitude of the victory was a surprise uh, because uh, I had traveled in India. I was on the ground um, doing one of my election trips. The book is a a 25-year travelogue of India, really. And uh, I was a bit concerned about the fact that, uh, um, you know, what would the nature of a a coalition look like if by chance he didn't make it. But in the end, he made it so comfortably that I think it really sort of took us by surprise. Now, I'm waiting to see what's happened on the 5th of July. That's when the Modi government presents its first big economic uh, document. It's the budget in India. And in no other country do I know (laughs) does the budget presentation, which is done annually, attract as much attention as it does in India. True. So I'll be very eager to see as to what signal is sent out there and how is um, Prime Minister Modi reading the signals from the election, uh, is he going to interpret it as a sort of validation of his welfare schemes, or is he going to sort of say, "Hey, the economy is really slowing, and we need need to do something about it uh, to jumpstart it by uh, giving people much more economic freedom than what he has done in the first term?" So that's the policy signal I'll be waiting for on the fifth of July. Let's introduce our guest. We're talking through Sheer Sharma, the head of emerging markets at Morgan Stanley, uh, just out with a new book on India, Democracy on the Road, the 25-year journey through India. Uh, and they just had this big Indian elections. We've been talking about it a lot of on our, on our show because it's, it's one of the more interesting when all this geopolitics, you know, India having some stability with Modi, the markets somewhat started to like it and just is starting to perform better. And the big question is, can that continue? Interesting, uh, Rushir, on, on, the, on this budget coming out. I mean, they we, we've been talking about how they had, you know, in, in terms, you talk about the slow pace of reforms. I mean, they did do some bold things last year or in the last few last last term with the demonetization and this goods and services tax. Um, if you were to say the bold reforms that you want to see and you say this would really get me from saying, hey, they disappoint the optimists, they disappoint the pessimists. What is the the bold reform that you think they need to actually address? I think the fundamental problem in India is that the state is uh, too big and too intrusive. So what I would like to see are more signs of privatization. It's uh, a forgotten word in India. There hasn't been a single privatization in its true sense that's been done in India in many, many years. And also about giving Indian states more control of their destiny. Uh, There's far too much centralization 
uh, of power in India that uh, that takes place or has taken place at least in the first term of Mr. Modi. So I've always said, and as I've documented in the book, that India is more a sort of collection of 29 uh, states rather than one homogeneous country like China. And what you need to do in a country like that is to give its states much more power, uh, the 29 states. So privatization and decentralization, I think that those are the two big buzzwords to look for uh, to sort of make me feel more excited about India from a macro perspective at this stage. How about the land and labor reforms, Rocher? Do you think those also need good attention? And those yeah, are course, difficult. Labor reforms is something, you know, which is required. Uh, so the list, I think, is well known. And, and um, we can all sort of agree on that. The uh, land reform, something needs to be done to change the land acquisition laws in the way they currently are, or whether India is going to be more bold enough to set up more special economic zones uh, to try and sort of grow more rapidly, just like the East Asian economies did. So I think it's that kind of stuff that I'm looking for more uh, as well. But uh, yeah, so the list is quite long, and we just have to see as to how much are they going to deliver. And the 5th of July is a couple of weeks away, and we'll get a pretty good signal from that. Very good. Um, you've been writing a lot of books. It is as now three, and you're done, uh, or three that I've been been talking about here. Any any new ones on on your agenda as well? Next big project? No, I mean, I, you know, like as you know, that writing is my passion. I do it on the side. Uh, so, um, apart from the columns I write for the New York Times, I think that that's a uh, that's a pretty sort of uh, full menu I've got for now. And just having finished a book, you know how it is. It's like having run a marathon. You want some time to recover before you can really think about the next one. Got it. Um, I mean, when you think about, we we talked about your concern on the you know the, the the three Ds on the demographics and the debt and the deglobalization for China. Uh, we've been talking a little bit on India. If you said you know the the country that people are not focused on enough that you think at Morgan Stanley that you guys are spending a lot of time sort of a under the radar growth opportunity or things that you're you're trying to bring more attention to. What where where is that? Well, the region that I've liked the most for a while, I feel, doesn't get enough of the attention and the credit for how well it's doing is possibly Eastern Europe. Uh, so some of those economies there, Poland's obviously the largest uh, one there, I think, like to me, is always very interesting because that could be the next developed country. Uh, and that's a big statement because there are very few countries which transition from becoming emerging to developed. Most economies remain emerging forever. They get these growth cycles on the back of some commodity boom or some other boom, and then they sort of tail off pretty quickly. I think that Poland's been a very good and steady growth story and could possibly be the first economy after South Korea back in the late 1990s to transition from becoming a a fully developed Mm. Economy. So I think that what's happening in Poland, where its manufacturing is very strong, it's uh, apart from demographics, really, all the other factors there in Poland to me rank pretty well from an economic perspective. So that's one area in general, Eastern Europe and Poland in particular. That I like. Now, now, those tend to be pretty small from like a, do- a total. If you were to look at standard strategies or benchmarks, there's probably only a few percent. A lot, I mean, there's a lot of yes. Asia exposure um, yes. to traditional benchmarks, but very little in Eastern Europe. Yes, uh, that's a good point, but I think that's what's that's why you're focused. <laughs> in emerging markets today, which is the fact that just three countries dominate the index. 
which is China, Korea, and Taiwan. So the top three countries make up for nearly 60% of the index, and the top five countries make up for just 75% of the index. That's really become a problem because you have so many other emerging markets in the world which make up only 25% of the index. So that's one of the real big issues today with the index construction in emerging markets, that it's very skewed in the favor of these tech-heavy markets, given the fact that tech's the only thing which has really done well in emerging markets over the last decade, uh, to the exclusion of so many other smaller or even mid-sized emerging markets. How do you guys think about that progression of, you talked about the developed market status and maybe Poland gets there, um, you know, by a lot of economic indicators, you could say Korea, South Korea is there, but in the index families, it's still in emerging partly from some technicalities on things that they like to see, you know, like these re- weird technicalities about can you in-kind the baskets of stocks from MSCI? Um, any view on how your firm thinks about this developed emerging status and how how to think about these big benchmarks? Well, as you know, like I'm on the investing side, so uh, this is not the firm view. This is my own personal view in terms of what I sort of think is happening here. Uh, so I think that as far as South Korea is concerned in general, I find that the South, it's a very difficult market to make money in uh, because – there are only a handful of stocks over time which have compounded and there are all sorts of corporate governance issues which are still there in that country. And you have a government today also which is quite sort of uh, wary of markets, uh, if I can put it uh, in a polite way. So I think that it, it's, a, it's a country that I just don't find too many exciting investment opportunities in. So I think the real opportunity, as I said, in emerging markets today is in buying some of these battered mid to small size markets at, at the expense of these large markets like Korea. And do you think, Richard, some of these countries that you mentioned, whether Eastern European countries or Southeast Asian countries, may benefit from the spillover effect of uh, this if, if this trade war tensions escalate? And, you know, so are these positioned well from a supply chain um, perspective? Oh, yes. I think that there's an upside to this deglobalization argument for some of these countries. The biggest beneficiary of this that we have already seen is Vietnam. So if you look at U.S. Uh, imports from different countries, uh, Chinese imports have, so, have uh, fallen off the cliff. I mean, they've really dropped sharply. And the big beneficiaries who are taking up market share are some of these economies in Asia led by Vietnam. Uh, so I'd say Vietnam, Southeast Asia, these are the economies which could be the beneficiary from people sort of diversifying the supply chains away from China. We're, so in our final few minutes here, Rashir, any areas of emerging markets or any of your, your focus points that we haven't covered yet that you think that uh, would be bring to, good to bring some attention to? No, as I said, I think we've gone through the world. I think that the big issue is the fact that America as a financial superpower has never been this dominant. So America's share in the global economy, you know, has sort of steadied and is down from its recent averages at about 25%. But from a financial market share, America has never been this dominant, whether it's a share of the total global market cap at about 55%, the power of the dollar where, you know, like, I think about 88% of all transactions in the world have are being done uh, with the dollar on one side of the exchange. The amount of debt which is being issued in the world is all in dollar. So, 
this decade has been very much America's decade. And the big sort of strategic shift to think about is that if and when is this theme coming to an end, and then to allocate capital much more internationally to places such as emerging markets. Uh, but that, for me, is the real one-point big decision to make in the next few months. And I think we're close to that point where it's hard to see how America alone can keep outperforming by the magnitude that it has done over the last decade. So Peak America is one of the big investment themes that I'm thinking about currently, uh, recognizing that this is done so well over the last decade and how to allocate capital away from this very dominant theme. So no need to make America great again? He's talking <laughs> peak already great. We're talking about <laughs> exactly. peak America for Mushir. Interesting topic, peak America. Okay. Uh, no, I, I'm on, I'm talking a lot of similar themes, evaluations, the growth profiles, emerging markets, uh, given that spread between where they're, they're trading and the growth opportunity. I think uh, Mushir makes a lot of great points. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.